Every society has a system of laws and rules that its members must abide by. Some are strict and almost esoteric in their complexity, while others may be a loose code of conduct merely to set a framework for interactions between its members. The Guru are no different, and their laws are called the litany. Some of these laws were in place before it, but the impergium is what spurred these words to become known to all members of the Guru nation. The impergium, the hunt and near extinction of mankind at the claws of the Guru, showed the werewolves that they needed to police themselves, too many of their kind falling prey to the allures of the worm after having committed atrocities towards the humans, and to their fellow changing breeds during the War of Rage. Thus, thirteen basic laws were set down, crafted into a poem of beauty and great length. To recite them as they were first made would take hours, and thus most Guru learn a summarized version that they will show their knowledge of before their elders as part of their rite of passage. Ostensibly all Guru tribes are supposed to follow the litany to the letter, to stray from them is to invite the worm into one's heart, but over time interpretations and prioritizations have ruled certain laws more relevant than others, and as the apocalypse looms near, the very first tenet of the litany has come under serious question, and often for a good reason. But we shall begin by reciting these 13 laws, ensuring that we are all in understanding of their words before we begin to dissect how they are followed. Garu shall not mate with Garu. Combat the worm wherever it dwells and whenever it breeds. Respect the territory of another. Accept an honorable surrender. Submission to those of higher station. The first share of the kill for the greatest in station. Ye shall not eat the flesh of humans. Respect those beneath ye, all are of Gaia. The veil shall not be lifted. Do not suffer thy people to tend thy sickness. The leader may be challenged at any time during peace. The leader may not be challenged during wartime. Ye shall take no action that causes a cairn to be violated. Simple rules to live by requiring little understanding of complex social games or politics. Unlike the nightly affairs of the Get of Cain, Guru have little patience for intrigue and clandestine games. Or at least so they say, but when one peels away this outer layer, it is not hard to see how politics rule the Guru just as they do all others. The stargazers have left the Garu nation, the shadow lords and silver fangs are at each other's throats, the red talons refuse to accept homids into their tribe and wage increasingly bloody crusades against the humans, and the Garu born, the third breed, grow in number for each year that passes. The first law of the litany, Garu shall not meet with Garu, may seem a simple one. It is taboo for a reason. Garu born are born with mental and physical disabilities, they are sterile, and are generally shunned amongst the Guru as being closer to the worm, even if this may strictly speaking not be true. It stands to reason that the Guru would wish to produce children with humans and wolves both to ensure their continued survival, but to also have healthy children. Yet reason is not an emotion. Garu, like humans, are creatures of passions and of emotions. Who else but another Guru can understand what terrors these warriors of Gaia encounter on a nearly daily basis? Who understands the rage, 
the frustration and sorrow of seeing Gaia's ceaseless struggle against the corruption of the Weaver and the Wyrm, forces created to help protect her and preserve the balance. A Garu pack is in a sense their family. It is the group with whom they will spend the rest of their lives, and thus it is far from unusual for feelings of affection to take root. First trust, then friendship, then maybe something closer. Even though they will both know that it is wrong, they may not be able to help themselves. Unfortunately for these Garu, many such trysts, however short-lived and unintended, often produce a child. It is as if Gaia has made sure that even once will be enough to punish them for breaking this law. It is a great dishonor on any Garu who has a child with one of their own kind, but this shame more often falls upon the mother. Many fathers are so ashamed of their act or refuse to take responsibility, some even leaving their packs in order to not have to face judgment for their deed. This, of course, is not always the case, and some Guru parents bear the burden of their shame and raise their child as best they can, and sometimes even the resilient body of the mother cannot survive giving birth to Akrinos, succumbing to injuries. Yet no matter how a Guru born are introduced to a sept, it is rarely with open arms. Some tribes stand out especially amongst the Guru for how they treat the third breed, but these we will talk about when the time comes. Something becoming more common is also that many Garu are questioning the validity of this tenet. The Garu are in desperate need of warriors, and a Garu born is guaranteed to be Garu as well. Thus, they argue, the time to cast judgment and scorn upon this third breed and their parents is not now, if ever, and those Garu should be forgiven for breaking this law, many arguing that the child themselves should never be punished for the deeds of their parents. Yet others also seek a middle ground, arguing that the litany exists for good reason, but that one should not throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater in this case. The second law, combat the worm wherever it dwells and whenever it breeds, seems likewise at first a fairly simple enough rule. The worm is the great corruptor after all, and who better to fight it than the guru? It is why they were created. Yet the worm these nights is everywhere, and the guru must choose their battles. Will they destroy everything touched by the Wyrm, risking their discovery and alienation from humans, or must they be more careful in what battles they wage? And what of the Weaver, whose unchecked creations drive humanity to further exploit and damage the Earth, and whom is believed to be the true culprit behind the Wyrm's madness? Many Garu also find the current state of things extremely disheartening, and may choose instead to focus on smaller achievements. They choose to remain blind to the larger truth because of how impossible it may seem. Hunting Banes and killing Fomori is, after all, much simpler than achieving lasting change both within their society and without. Respect the territory of another harkens back to the old times when Garu were more plentiful, when humanity was more contained, and when the Garu could afford claiming large swaths of land for themselves. These days it is often a mere formality, especially in urban sprawls. Some, like the Shadow Lords and Silverfangs, expect this law to be respected and followed, and in some regards most other tribes do as well. They just don't necessarily expect a howl of introductions when an email or a DM might suffice. Certain seps, especially those with a large population of lupus-born Garu, may not consider these appropriate substitutes, however, so it is always a good idea for a visiting Garu to ask around carefully before they decide how to best introduce themselves. The law to accept an honorable surrender became a necessity due to the ancient practice of the Guru to duel with each other to test their strengths and to prove their worth. 
Even when they were more plentiful, the Garou preferred not to unnecessarily lose any of their warriors in such a duel. And this was a possibility. Garou are known for their rage, and when they fight, their bloodlust may get the better of them. These knights' duels are invoked far less often, but the death of a Garou is felt even more keenly. Thus, this part of the litany might be heavily stressed before any such duels take place. The loser may bear their throat, and thus receive the mercy of the victor without any loss of honor at their part, but it is far from unheard of for particularly wily Garou to accidentally miss their opponent's surrender and deliver a crippling or even lethal blow to their beaten rival. The Garou nation holds honor, wisdom and glory in high regard, and they are often strictly hierarchical in their societies. Older Garou often have a list of mighty deeds to their names, and are thus entitled to a certain amount of respect from those below them. Thus the law of submission to those of higher station. In older times this law was strictly reinforced, and rulers of the Garou would often hold considerable power which they wielded with impunity. Today, not so much. Many young Garous scoff at their elders who cannot keep up with their understanding of the world, and usefulness and skill is not as clearly defined anymore. A young and talented hacker may cause untold times more damage to the worm and its agents than an older Garou who's a master with a glaive. The tribes vary greatly in their approach to this tenet, some ignoring it completely and others still clinging to it and the power it grants them. But those are fewer and fewer, and most competent elders of a sept will have by now realized that the older ways do not always work these nights, and act accordingly, even if that means asking a pup for help with downloading some apps on their new fangled cell phone. The first share of the kill for the greatest in station may have originally meant that when the guru hunted, the greatest portion would be reserved for the leader of the pack. Yet this has also come to mean that those in charge also get the majority of the spoils should something of value fall into their hands. Garou are generally not very materialistic, but occasionally powerful fetishes or even particularly enticing pieces of property may be up for grabs, and then this law is often invoked. This way of thinking rhymes poorly with the more democratic-minded Garou of the modern knights, and a few tribes have abandoned this practice completely the Bonars in particular showing more interest in sharing things equally. Ye shall not eat the flesh of humans. Powerful words, disturbing as well, for they imply that the Guru willfully partook of this morbid morsel before it was forbidden to them. And indeed that is how things were. During the Impergium, and before it, many Guru slaked their hunger on the flesh of the long pigs. But stargazer mystics began to see a pattern, realizing that those who did became more prone to succumbing to the worm's influence. Not only that, humanity was never much of a match for the Garou at that time, and thus it would dull their edge when worthier foes would appear. It is however far from uncommon for Garou to partake in human flesh during one of their frenzies, especially during their very first change. Thus, this is a law that is not always enforced quite as severely as some others, but there is of course a difference in degrees. Garou who take up the habit of feeding on humans are often shunned, sometimes even hunted, for their actions, as they are believed to be inviting the worm into their hearts by doing so. We have discussed only seven of the thirteen tenets of the litany, but our time runs short. When next we meet, we will discuss the last six, and then take a closer look at how the Garou mete out justice amongst themselves, both in terms of how a trial is conducted, but also how the punishment is dealt. 
The four grandchildren of Cain wait patiently for the time of judgment to arise. Snow, wise beyond his years and powerful in his compassion. Bambi Parsons, a leader with an unbreakable will. Dr. Sheepington, whose wisdom, like the ocean, is deep and broad beyond our understanding. And Dugal, whose thirst for blood is matched only by his strength of will. Their childhood, the Methuselah, control our every move through their timeless jihad. They are Her Satanic Majesty Danny, whose mere presence chills the heart. Maximilian S. Hardcastle, tutor of countless Ventru in the arts of the jihad. Socrates Johnson, a masterful craftsman of stories. Lauren Eason, a trustworthy ally and friend. The observant and calculative Procyon, the unemployed writer whose words have guided nations, as well as Alexander Kanehurst, inquisitive explorer of the world of darkness. On the Council of the Primogen are seated Edward Reed, Colin Gifford, Zero Six, Ian Nichols, the Black Friar, Ravenfang, Brad Hardwick, Pilgrim, and Get of Mathrox, wise leaders and of good judgment. This week the Council would wish to thank Dante the Canine for his continued support. Thank you so much, my friend. We would also wish to welcome Jay Johnson to the rank of Ancillae. The Council is looking forward to watching your progression and ambitions grow. Naturally, all our elders, Ancillae and neonates receive our gratitude from the bottoms of our hearts. Without your support, this would not be possible. And thank you for watching. The full moon rises and Gaia's warriors strike out into the night. Tremble, servants of the weary.